You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. This is the MIT Alumni Books podcast, and I'm Joe McGonigal. Andrew Bunny Huang is a class of 1997 alum who went on to earn an MNNG in Course 6 and a PhD in Course 6D. His new book, published in spring 2017 by No Starch Press, is The Hardware Hacker, Adventures in Making and Breaking Hardware. It's his second book following the 2003 Hacking the Xbox, an introduction to reverse engineering. Huang truly embodies men's at Manus, mind and hand, and this new book is a chronicle of his intellectual and manual efforts to tinker with and improve on technology. Buddy Huang, thanks for patching in. Tell us about writing this book. Was the writing of it any more difficult than the publishing of it? So actually the book was written over many, many years. In fact, the, the source material for the book comes from a series of blog posts that I had done. For a while, um, actually, the publisher, No Search Press, had been batting the, the idea around with me of trying to put them together into a cohesive arc and turn it into a story. And then, you know, I guess finally we got around to, to doing it. There's enough material there, and, and he put together a like, table of contents that made sense. And then I spent a bit of time sort of rewriting sections, adding some material to connect the, the story together and bring things up to date, we got to the point of a publication. I would say that, like, you know, No Stretch is a really good publisher to work with. They took a lot of the burden off of me. Um, they, they, you know, they had a copy editor working, a really, really talented editor working. It was actually one of the more fun books I had to work on recently. You don't get one page into the book before there's some, some great blurbs, they call them, from dignitaries who've read the book in advance. And the very first one you list is from Edward Snowden, who said, Hardware, says Bunny, is a world without secrets. If you go deep enough, even the most important key is expressed in silicon or fuses. Bunny's is a world without mysteries, only unexplored spaces. This is a look inside a mind without peer. Why Edward Snowden gets the first word in your book. Talk about his influence on you. Well, I mean, <laughs> the publisher arranged for all the quotations. I mean, I'm guessing he put... Edward's name first because he's the most recognizable of all the people on the list. I've uh, had the fortune to um, have the opportunity to work with Ed over the past year and change, and um, it's been it's been really interesting, sort of learning from him and and sort of understanding more about um, kind of the world of privacy and surveillance and the and sort of the geopolitical problems that we're facing and the things you know, we can do technologically to try and you know, solve some of these problems and, and bring the power back into into the hands of the users. And so when we were sort of talking about who would be the person who might be interested in looking at the book and maybe, you know, considering the book and giving a quote to it, and we say, hey, maybe it maybe, maybe would be interested in send a copy to him. And, and those kind words were what he left. You write about uh, giving media, mentoring Media Lab students over the years and bringing them on a tour mm-hmm. of the electronics market in Shenzhen where you discovered a brand new world of uh, hardware hacking and understanding the supply chain in the world of technology. But then uh, the mm-hmm. book seems to take us on that same tour, much the same tour that you've given to a lot of your students. It seems like you wanted yeah. to bring that to the millions who, who don't get the personal Bunny Huang tour of Shenzhen. And MIT students yeah. and MIT alumni probably know something. I, I was thinking of Micro Center down the street from us here. Compare Micro Center in Cambridge <laughs> yeah. to uh, Shenzhen. Yeah, if you were to take Micro Center and replicate that store and cover the entirety of Cambridge Port with that, 
and then stack that up about 10 stories tall, that would be about the scale of the markets in Shenzhen. So that's just the size. And then the variety, of course, is like through the roof. I mean, Microcenter, back when I was a student, they still sold some components and bits and pieces. And uh, and that was always fun to be able to grab, you know, a few ICs or whatever is when you need it. I think those are largely gone now. But, you know, Huachan Bay is just like, you can just, I mean, literally, I, I, I would have like production problems and people are like, oh, well, you know, we're missing like, you know, 10,000 diodes for a production. And I'd say, okay, well, you know, We'll stop by the market on the way in. I'll pick up 10,000 diodes, and you know, about $10 later, and 10 minutes of negotiation, I got my 10,000 diodes, and I just drive over to the factory, drop it in the line, and we're ready to go. That's the scale. I mean, it's, the other kind of comparison I have is there's there's like single stalls. Like the, the markets kind of arrange like wet markets almost. If you've ever been to the meat and fish markets that they have in Chinatown, same kind of like arrangement, very small stalls, all specialized in one thing. And I did like a back of the envelope calcul- calculation, and one of these stalls alone had more inventory in it than DigiKey had in its entire inventory for that particular type of chip. The amount of just inventory that's sitting there is is massive. So you can really just go there over the counter, cash and carry, go to production, which is which is a very unique situation, which you couldn't do in Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft, you just go there and you buy a couple parts to fix your computer. You're like, this is like Microsoft in production quantities. You gain the appreciation there of the ecosystem of technology surrounding all of our favorite devices in the world. Yeah, and what it takes to build them. A lot of a lot of effort and a lot of people. I found an important moment in the book is about halfway through. You talk about as a child first studying the schematic for the Apple II computer. Why was that such a formative mm-hmm. experience for you? That was huge because as a child, I was just curious, and I just liked the colors and the shapes of like the stuff on the circuit board and I would just touch it because I was curious. I had no idea what I was doing, but then when I was summing to the book, there's this thing that just folded out. It was like an eight-year-old size sheet of schematics. And I realized that so I recognized some of the 74 series part numbers were like the same labels that were on the chips that are on the schematic. And I was like, oh my God, there's like something here that can tell me what's going on in this thing. Like I don't, I didn't understand it, right? But just the idea that I could understand it was what I really needed. It's so easy to overlook, you know, a side path or to think that a mountain is too tall or whatever it is, but the moment you're shown a map and you're shown a way, even the tallest mountains can be scaled and, and, and passed. For me, that was extremely formative and, and sort of a thing that, you are passing it on to the future generations. I, I want, you know, I do a lot of open source work because I feel like it's very important for us not to think that technology has become a black box and is this mysterious thing that we can only buy from Apples and Googles and, and Samsungs at the end of the day. One of the nice things about electronics technology versus biology is that everything in electronics is made by humans. By definition, it's all understandable by humans. There's no possible random chance event or divine intervention that could have brought this about. So there's nothing in the in our boxes that sh- that should make us feel we don't understand them. And I would like to give people the beginning of the you know the string to pull to discover that if they want to. Whereas, in like for example, in biology, you know, it's just incredibly complicated and you know wasn't necessarily designed. And there's a lot of just so things that happen. And so that's a that's a completely different story in terms of trying to understand how humans work, for example. Your current project, or a current project of yours, Love to Code, and uh, the accompanying Chibitronics, you are aiming at that K-12 cohort. Absolutely. And yeah, the, the Chibitronics and Love to Code is all about 
trying to get more people included in the conversation of technology. It's not just K-12, but also it's like getting underrepresented minorities, women and people who have not been serviced by the sort of technology curriculum and to show them that it's actually for them and that it's relevant and interesting to get into. And I think that there's been this kind of a hazing ritual that you go through to learn electronics. There's a very typical path that you know I've followed and a bunch of other people at MIT have followed, but it tends to select for a very particular kind of personality. And you see this in the workplaces, you see this in society, you see this people that you work with in the tech industry, and it creates a certain culture that almost alienates the rest of the world. The really interesting thing is that now that technology is becoming something that the entirety of society depends upon, it's no longer the case that a few nerds can like make decisions about the internet and, and society will just like let them do it. We're getting to the point where technology is so important that people are going to legislate what technologists do. And we can't, we can't just go out and do what we want to do anymore because so much of the world depends upon the output technologists. And I think if we don't include more people and empower them to participating in this conversation, we run the risk of, of bad decisions being made through popular votes. The very beginning of sort of solving this problem is figuring out how to frame technology education in a way that um, everyone can feel that they can be involved. And it, and it does involve sort of changing the culture, changing the precepts, and being more inclusive, including design and art and uh, expression alongside technology so that people can see you know, humans can apply this in ways that amplify their capabilities in all walks of life. Right. You, said, you said in one talk, if the demographics of the tech industry are too lopsided. Maybe we need to change the ingredients in electronics to begin with, and uh, that's what Love to Absolutely. Code is, is all about. And and, uh, and using talk about some of the ingredients in these in these new electronic uh, devices. So Love to Code, we actually are using paper instead of breadboards and circuit boards as a substrate. And the classic way of sort of teaching with breadboards and wires and people who are in course six MIT will recognize nerd kits and so forth. They're really technical and can achieve certain things, but they're very almost kind of hostile and cold in a way. The interesting thing about paper, which has been sort of underappreciated, is that when you build a circuit using paper and copper tape, it's actually, mechanically speaking, almost the same properties as a circuit board. Like, we can actually talk about the impedance of a trace on a piece of paper if you put a ground plane underneath it. You can't talk about this in a breadboard. It's a wire in space, and it's, you know, it's basically antennae rating and stuff. Obviously, you can't really build good circuits. So it turns out paper is actually an incredibly good substrate for doing the circuitry in a way. It can, you can do double-sided, it can do surface mount, it can do a bunch of stuff with it. And But in addition to the technical properties, paper is a wonderful expressive medium. You can fold into origami, you can play with light, self-documenting, you write on it and put notes on it. You can make greeting cards, you can send notes to friends. It has this great blend of being both a great technical medium and also being something that has an immediate connection you can make to people with. You know, why am I learning how to blink an LED? Well, this, this bedboard is not very interesting, but if you put a blinking LED on the nose of Rudolph and you, and you give it to your friends, all of a sudden you have this motivation to want to learn more. Well, that was, that was interesting. I want to make a star twinkling now. I want to like, you know, learn how to make interaction and lights and that sort of thing. And so it lets people who would normally say, like, ah, technology, just I don't get it. Like, why would we build these big, bulky things that don't look interesting? And all of a sudden you realize there's a very immediate application for it. Hopefully that just gets them hooked and gets them understanding that coding is just another way of expressing thought and they can become involved in the conversation through that. So that might help us build the next improved, say, Google in 20 years, but to mention we are talking a week after uh, all this media flurry following this 
Google memo from a, a Google employee oh, of, you right. know, explaining why 80% of Google employers are male is essentially what he was setting out to do. Talk about what mm -hmm. universities need to do, what industry needs to do with existing demographics. There's a couple studies from universities. There's two of them, which put a bunch of research into figuring out how to get the undergraduate enrollment to gender parity. And a lot of it was just changing the culture. Computer science is interesting. It's one of the few subjects where you're expected to know how to do it before you get into college. It's not like you go into medical school, people expecting you to know how to like suture a wound or like you know, do stitches or cut someone open. But if you walk into MIT, a computer science class, you've never written a line of C code in your life or JavaScript, whatever it is. People are like, what the heck are you doing here, right? Like, just lead you out and say, go away. There's plenty of very intelligent people who can learn how to do it, but because the bar is already so high by the time that someone even considers that maybe computers is a path that they want to engage in, they're sort of thrown out of the pool. For, you know, even, for example, the bias starts at a really young age. We look at the demographics of what parents will buy children in terms of engineering construction kits, the gender based upon first name, the research study done on that, is a huge number is basically bought for male children at the end of the day. So the basic idea is that you just sort of, first of all, create some courses that say, look, you don't have to be a genius in, in coding. Here's how to do it. It's okay if you don't know how to do it. Like, please come and join us. That's the first thing. And then second thing is create an environment that's more supportive that allows people to sort of participate in the conversation, not so much about the huffing and puffing and like, oh, like, you know, I'm, I'm hardcore, I stayed up all night, got my problem set done, and that's, that's like the super important thing. And, I, and the outcome is that they were able to normalize their enrollment to like sort of 50-50 enrollment at the end of the day. So there's, a, there's no path on how to fix this. In terms of how to fix an existing corporate culture, that's difficult because the analogy I made in one of my talks is like kind of like sauerkraut, where if you take... And, you know, cabbage, nothing else. You just take cabbage and salt and fill it in a jar. It turns into sauerkraut because there's a particular type of bacteria that creates acetic acid, lowers the pH, kills off all the other bacteria, and every single time, you don't even have to put preservatives or anything in there. The bacteria itself will do the job of making the environment so hostile to the other bacteria that the only thing that can survive is that bacteria. If you want to make something else other than sauerkraut, you just don't throw more fresh cabbage in. You just get more sauerkraut. So the problem in a lot of these corporate environments you see is that this particular culture has taken root, and it's has such a low pH that it's, you have to change the pH of the whole environment first before you can even decide to throw something in there and hope that you can get something else other than the existing culture. You know, I don't have an answer to that problem. I'm hoping that by starting from the ground up, and sort of rethinking education, rethinking what tech means, rethinking what the values are for technology that we can create, as some would say, a whole new clubhouse for the different kind of people. A year ago, you sued the U.S. government over the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. What provoked that, and, and how's the lawsuit coming? So, <laughs> a lot's changed over the last year. What provoked that, I have to be careful if it is an active lawsuit. What I can say is that this, this goes back to sort of the whole thing about the Apple II schematics and being able to know that the path is there and that there's no boundaries. Kind of the inverse happens with the DMCA is that the chill of something as expansive as a DMCA, which basically makes it a crime to do any sort of decryption without the express approval of the copyright owner. The fact decryption itself may be a criminal act scares a lot of people away from even looking underneath the rock, right? It's sort of like saying, you know, you can't look underneath rocks Looking at rocks without the permission of the rock owner is going to be illegal. So no one's going to look underneath rocks anymore. And so that means all the wonderful things that could be hidden in rocks will never be found. And we'll never find, you know, oil. We'll never find minerals or whatever it is because we don't want to look underneath rocks. I feel like 
I remember what it was like to be in a world before the DMCA. And I remember how I felt really empowered and enabled to explore and own my equipment and take things apart and remix and take in ideas and grow. And like, you know, it was great. And then I've had so many instances where I'm in a startup or thinking about doing a startup and we think through the whole chain of stuff and they're like, oh crap, the DMCA, we can't do that. The idea just dies in the vine, right? Just so many good ideas just die in the vine because of the, it's not even like we're even sure that's legal. It's just the possible threat makes it hard to raise money, makes it hard to get the idea off the ground, makes it hard to like, get people, recruit people into the company, all this sort of stuff. And so it really stays against that. This, this is a problem for innovation, particularly in, in the Western ecosystem that is you know, greatly affected by this. And we should reform it if we want to you know, keep on being competitive. There's, there's other societies that aren't as wed to the DMCA, and they're becoming extremely innovative and competitive, in part, I think, because they don't have the same restrictions on their, on their brains. In terms of the status of the suit, I think the short summary I can put out there is that something happened in November, and the courts are really, really busy right now. So I understand that the court dockets are extremely full right now for a lot of really good reasons. So we're just kind of waiting our turn. Customers who bought your book on Amazon also bought books by Simon Monk, Craig Smith, Will Alsop, Ben Clark, Brandon Perry. Is the algorithm on Amazon doing its job right? I don't know. I actually would have to look up uh, what those books are. I, I'm actually not familiar with what, what the titles of the works would be. Yeah, in fairness, they all have the word hacker in the title. <laughs> oh, it, it, Amazon, Amazon's classified me in the weirdest places. The book doesn't really, it doesn't actually fit into any category either. That's also the, the kind of strange thing. It goes everywhere from manufacturing to hacking to digital rights to biology. So it's the thing I like to say, I like to do, you know what I have to do, what I call dot connecting exercises. It's like, you know, you learn a lot of points, you know, you, you specialize in the area and every now and then I just take a step back and connect the dots from silicon all the way to servers, all the way to society, and then see where that arc kind of goes. You know, this book sort of tries to do this, it takes a step back and tries to connect a bunch of the dots, which means it doesn't really fall into a particular category. It's almost kind of a, half philosophy book, half technical book. <laughs> you're algorithm busting. You're trying to bust the algorithm. Define the mold. <laughs> Tell me what else you're reading right now, Bunny. Oh, my gosh. I am I'm reading a whole bunch of stuff that I can't, can't talk about. <laughs> um, I'm doing, I, actually, I was actually doing a bunch of research right now on, on the subject of Ethernet. That's all I can say. It's interesting. <laughs> Bunny Huang, 97, is the author of The Hardware Hacker, Adventures in Making and Breaking Hardware, and it's available now from No Starch Press or at your favorite local hacker's bookstore. Bunny, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.